0: Rick Ingrassi, welcome to The New School. Thank you, Michael. You are a holistic physician, a life coach, and a what I might call a serial social entrepreneur. You <laughs> founded uh, Interface, the Holistic Health Center in Boston in 1974. You co-founded Physicians for Social Responsibility with Helen Caldecott in 1978. Uh, You've co-founded the American Holistic Medical Association in 1977 and the Hollyhock Retreat Center up on Cortez Island in British Columbia in 1982. Uh, I know that you are a jazz accordion player and play the piano. And um, two of the quotes from your websites that I really like one is from Dostoevsky, the quote—a beautiful quote—that that says, "Beauty will save the world," and another that says, "If you want to support social change, throw a better party."
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's me. So
0: you're interested in the role of collective joy and social change. Tell us a little about that.
1: Yes, well, I'm a child of the '60s, and. Uh, was in college uh, from 65 to 69 at Cornell University and I, uh, you know, I, I became radicalized by the consciousness of the time. Uh, I think some of the psychedelic drugs I took probably helped as well and uh, began to explore consciousness uh, in many ways. And uh, what I loved about our generation is that we really did take a radical stance relative to personal freedom and uh, direct experiential learning, and uh, so things like Woodstock to me are an example of collective joy that uh, really have social impact and, and actually change culture and I think, as I went into medical school and uh, I also have a master 's in public health, and you know, really tried to dig into what I used to call community mental health, you know what makes for healthy communities psychologically and spiritually. Uh, Over the years, I just became convinced that the experience of collective joy, I mean, obviously happiness on a personal level is very important, but I really feel that uh, our generation, the 60s generation, had made a breakthrough. Uh, It was almost like a, a recidivist that we went back and rediscovered what indigenous cultures have known for many, many years which is that uh, carnival and festivity and ritual and ways to experience communitas, which is really spontaneous love in community, uh, is probably a part of how we're going to find our way out of the jam we're in you know, uh, as a planet, let's say.
0: So this is the return of the Dionysian in yes. the human psyche, the collective psyche.
1: Yes and uh, I, I jokingly say that uh, barbara Aaron reich has recently published uh, the bible of the throw a better party movement uh... She, she's written a book called dancing in the streets a history of collective joy and uh... she documents you know in an anthropological fashion uh... the role throughout human history i mean going all the way back uh, to you know prehistoric times uh... uh that ritual and dance in particular and song and music and color and feasting uh played in the creation of the community and and the culture
0: i personally um am less in touch with either personal or collective joy than i would like to be Mm. and perhaps am to some degree a, a child of that uh more sober uh, perspective that is so endemic in our cu- culture. So how, uh, give, give me an example of uh, how, how one creates collective joy in our culture today. What's an example of a piece of work that you've done where you've really been able to watch collective joy actually at work?
1: Well, I, love to give you a bunch of them but uh, the, the the best one uh, is actually the work uh, that my wife uh, peggy taylor who was one of the founders and editors of new age journal for many years ten years ago she and a fellow named charlie uh, murphy uh, co-founded an organization called the power of hope and these were essentially initially creativity camps for teenagers where they would bring together 50 or 60 teens of all You know racial and cultural backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds like the most diverse group of kids you could imagine and they would bring them together with 25 or 30 artists and social activists and leaders of various kinds who would be the counselors for these camps and they they would call this a heart-centered community experience and over the course of seven days the most remarkable transformation would take place for these kids. For many of these kids, it was what I would call life-saving. A lot of the kids uh, really represent... I mean, teenagers tend to march to different drummers and fall into different uh, states of despair and alienation. I think we all know what that looks like. And uh, this essentially is a celebratory, arts-based creativity process that results in... uh, kids you know like gangster rappers and you know very, very uh you know kids who don't show a lot of emotion at the end of these camps would be in tears at leaving their uh, their campmates so that's one example and it continues to grow and expand charlie has become an ashoka fellow so there's more networking with social entrepreneurs and other places he's over in uganda right now doing uh, these teen camps with kids uh, with aids in kampala uganda it's uh, It's the best example I can think of. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. Check it out at (laughs) powerofhope.org.
0: You uh, are, as I mentioned, a co-founder of the Hollyhock Retreat Center on Cortez Island Mm -hmm. in uh, British Columbia. Um, And uh, you are, among other things, a a sponsor of an invitational gathering uh, that you do every year there that I understand has some of this Collective joy aspect to it. Tell yeah. us about that and what you've learned from the Hollyhock Invitational uh, uh, Weeks that you've done for over 20 years now.
1: Yes, well, Hollyhock is this gorgeous, uh, it used to be the Cold Mountain Institute in the 70s. Uh, it was started by a lot of the humanistic psychology types, uh, Fritz Perls and Virginia Satir. And uh, a group of us bought it in 1982 after it had closed its doors. Uh, but it's, you know, one of these gorgeous beachfront settings immersed in nature, and if you've never been to the islands of British Columbia, it is like Shangri-La. But uh, my wife Peggy and I, and a small group of us, we had this idea that most conferences or most most gatherings uh, tend to be talking heads and passive audiences, and then juicy things tend to happen when people get in the hallways, and they, they have generative conversations, and laugh and have a good time so we said why don't we just create an event that's more like a half vacation half conference uh, that's all hallway and you know just forget the uh, talking heads Um, and that's what we did we created something then it was known as the Hollyhock Invitational Conference and uh, we changed the name a few years later to make it a little less elitist sounding we call it now the Hollyhock Summer Gathering but essentially it's an invitational conference where 70 people Come together and you know it's the kind of thing where half the group that shows up uh, has been there before and uh, there's usually a lot of new people as well because it's it's really an open kind of process uh, in terms of people getting there through referral etc and uh, the beauty of it is that over 21 years since the focus was be together you know be as authentic and relaxed and open as possible and to come from a place of deep heart as well as you know deep intellectual uh, engagement a uh, a field you might say a field of love has emerged you know so that when you step into this space and we we've done it now for 21 years the field is very strong you feel safe supported and encouraged to uh to go for the deepest meaning that you can find in your own life and in the uh, collective now we do this through a lot of very fun kinds of activities that's the reason it's it's kind of uh, an experience of collective joy We have plenary sessions where people present their best and brightest ideas in the morning uh, that's usually surrounded by you know yoga meditation prayer uh, spiritual work uh, very eclectic and ecumenical the afternoons are Open to uh, well, you know, open spaces where people say, "I'd like to present a workshop on death and dying," and somebody like the, uh, somebody like Rachel Raymond might come and and do that. Um, and then the evenings tend to be storytelling, except it's not a professional storytelling teller telling you stories; it's us participating in the storytelling, an open mic or a talent show which tends to be the usually the most jovial evening <laughs> of the night. You'd be surprised the hidden talents all of these creative people have. Um, a uh, Well, I guess I'll call it a kind of a Dionysian dance evening. Uh, we tend to have lots of uh, drummers, I mean really good drummers on Cortez Island and musicians. So there's music and dance. Uh, we have oyster barbecues, fantastic natural gourmet uh foods uh, hollyhock is a very nurturing environment so that after a a week um, with no agenda other than the theme of the conference for instance this year's theme is paying attention to what matters most well there's a lot of answers to that uh, question for people and uh, but the point is by the end of the week everyone feels nurtured supported Usually new connections have, and relationships have been made. Uh, sometimes projects come out of, of these exchanges. But that, again, it's, it's kind of like releasing the outcome and just being together. So that would be the Hollyhock Summer Gathering example.
0: So, and you say that in, in your world that there are these two examples, the Power of Hope and the Hollyhock Summer Gathering, are one of many, many examples that you could give. In other words, you, you live in a world where you see the world as uh, consisting at least in some significant part of these opportunities for creating communitas community, and for uh, generating collective joy. And the power of collective joy, aside from just the joy, mm-hmm. is that it really, in your view, facilitates social change.
1: Yes. I, uh, I mean, without going into detail, I live in another island community on Whidbey Island uh, in Washington State near Seattle, uh, where, uh, you know, there's 12,000 people on our end of the island who uh, find ways to create uh, uh, For instance, we invented uh, uh, the coming of the Whales Day. Uh, every year, the gray whales from Baja, California, drop by my village and hang out for two months and eat the shrimp off the beach. Uh, and it, uh, we realized, well, this is we could ritualize this. We could actually create a celebration, because there they are, you know, every year and uh, that would be an example it's a community that's looking for an excuse to party you might say but it's a party with a purpose it's not simply trivial or you know oh let's get high together uh, although i have nothing wrong with people getting high together it's just that uh, i i i have found that and you'll see this in young people in particular the world is trying to find its way into more loving trust-based relationships and it turns out that the best way to get there is to give people a space to be creative and free and loving uh, as opposed to pointing your finger and saying you should, you know, eat vegetarian, you should. Uh, it's not about shooting on each other. It's really about celebrating life.
0: That's beautiful. You mentioned two communities, the Cortez community and the Whitby Island community. These are two of a whole string of islands uh, off uh, seattle and off the coast of british columbia i'm curious as an insider to that set of cultures and subcultures it seems to me like a tremendously creative set of subcultures Mm. that exist up there
1: i i think that's true uh michael um Some people refer to this area, it's called the Inside Passage, you know, the islands uh, from where Seattle is going up through uh, the inside of uh, Vancouver Island, they're called the Gulf Islands in Canada, and then the Queen Charlotte Islands, and then up to Alaska. Um, It's also known uh, by the native uh, community as the Salish Sea, because, you know, that was their name for it in the old days. But yeah, you know, I I don't know if you've ever lived or spent much time on an island, but uh, it's a very special kind of uh, mindset that comes uh, from living in a place where you actually know where the border is. I mean, unless you can walk on water, it's usually where the water begins. And uh, so there's a, a sense of the whole, and the idea that you are connected and interconnected to everyone in that place, and not just every person, but also all life all the species so you know when the book ecotopia came out in many ways those of us in the northwest you know thought he was talking about us because we have a consciousness of the environmental and ecological interconnectedness of all life and it's it's still a place that's wild enough or has pockets of real wilderness and old growth you know temperate rainforest etc that uh, it attracts a certain kind of consciousness you know people who are making a choice to kind of step out of the fast lane of urban cosmopolitan culture not that we don't have seattle and vancouver and centers of that kind of activity but uh, you know it's 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 a it's like another way of being or another world is possible as the social forum people say Actually,
0: Ecotopia was originally inspired by Bolinas. You folks just thought it was
1: about <laughs> you. I kind of knew that, but I guess. I think that's actually
0: historically true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Just thinking of uh, uh, some of... Uh, I've been to Whidbey Island, and just thinking of some of the kinds of people that you and I both know there, uh, people like Charles Terry and Betsy McGregor, who were co-founders of The Door an extraordinarily creative youth center in New York City mm-hmm. for many years that was considered an international model. Uh, Fritz and Vivian Hull, who were co-founders of the Whidbey Institute. Uh, Elise Miller, whose work with uh, children's environmental health uh, is inspiring and we're very engaged with. Uh, Harada Roshi, the Zen uh, uh Priest, who has founded a center there and is running a hospice as, uh, for Whidbey Island. A Zen hospice. It's yes. fantastic. Uh, Vicki Robbins, who uh, uh, re- co-authored Your Money or Your Life. Uh, Sharon Park DeLose, who's very involved in integrative education. So uh, even from a very superficial point of view as a visitor from time to time, um, it seems as if uh, Whidbey Island alone has uh, a kind of critical mass mm. of people who are engaged in in creating um, a very uh, generative community. Yes. And is that not true also of, of the other islands? In other words, are, is would be unusual in the degree to which it's created this sort of generative culture, or could we kind of go down the other islands and find similar levels of creativity on the other islands?
1: You could. Uh, yeah. That's the good news. Yeah. Uh, and if you'd like, I'll I'll just take a few seconds and say, Bainbridge Island, which is right off of Seattle, has uh, BGI, Bainbridge Graduate Institute, started by uh, Gifford and Libba Pinchot, which is an MBA program in sustainable business. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but given that it kind of looks like where the future is going, it's it's just very exciting that Bainbridge uh, has such a, an engaged uh you know community of, of uh, activists and, and uh, environmentalists and going the other way orcas island uh, lopez island uh, lots of the islands in canada salt spring uh, it's uh, it's pretty consistent you know and, and again we don't want to over-idealized in the sense that, you know, there's also a lot of people who uh, are farmers or who are are, uh, dropouts or uh, a lot of the uh, people who came to Whidbey in in the the 60s were draft resistors. They were on their way to Canada, and they realized that they were enough off the beaten path that uh, they might not be noticed, so they stayed on Whidbey, and they formed the core of a kind of counterculture that has grown into this progressive uh, uh, environmentally... uh, conscious kind of community whidbey by the way is a very big island it's 55 miles long and it has two cultures on it it has a naval air station on the north end where the military does its thing uh, in you know in full force Uh, and our community tends to be on the south end of the island where which is near the ferry there's a 15 minute ferry that connects you to the mainland i think one of the reasons that whidbey's uh, a bit more exciting than a lot of places is is that it's close to Seattle it's close enough to the urban energy that you know I can be in downtown Seattle in 45 minutes uh, including the ferry you know Um, so we we tend to uh, want to engage more in some of the uh, you know the political and geopolitical issues that are that are happening on Cortez in British Columbia it's much more remote if you choose to live on Cortez year-round and I live there three months out of the year in the summer uh, and spend my time you know with Hollyhock and in, in our cabins uh it's uh you know you're you're stepping out of the uh, the, the main lane you know you're, you're really uh, retreating to a, a remote uh, lifestyle so there there are different lifestyle choices uh, depending on the location of the island you're talking about
0: i believe andrew weill also lives on cortez part-time yes. paul stamets the mushroom, mushroom guy mm-hmm. lives up there so there's a powerful set of subcultures strung out like beads Mm -hmm. on these islands along the uh, pacific northwest of the u.s. and british columbia and because british columbia as i understand it is for canada what california and the pacific northwest are for the united states in terms of cultural creativity Mm -hmm. i'm curious about what it's like to live at the interface between the pacific northwest and british columbia in other words. What are the similarities and differences in terms of uh, generative culture Mm -hmm. uh, between Canada and the Pacific Northwest? Is that describable?
1: To some degree it is. There is a a difference. I mean, anybody who's spent any time in Canada knows that the Canadians uh, tend to be uh, a kinder, gentler people, meaning that, uh, you know, America, the United States uh, is a kind of looking out for number one, go get them free market capitalist culture and uh, canada uh, as our northern uh, brethren uh, is essentially a lot of people say well canada is the 51st state you know it's uh, their economy is so tied into ours and their cultural imagination is so connected to our movies and you know art forms etc but in truth you know the indigenous cultures in canada are amazing and very coherent in their own consciousness about what life is about Uh, so there's a lot of you know uh, mutual exchange uh, in terms of art and imagery and and, uh, ways to live you know the the Canadian indigenous uh, peoples were famous for their potlatches for instance one of the most generous you know forms of social organization where the sign of wealth was not how much you kept for yourself it was how much you gave away And uh, I like that idea. I I actually think we could start to apply that uh, a little more generally in the world as we become a global society and and have better results than we're uh, seeing with uh, so-called global capitalism. But be that as it may, um, the last six years have been particularly stark, you know, with the the war in Iraq and, you know, the neoconservative juggernaut that... uh, you know, kind of shown the dark side of American culture for, well, at least from my perspective. Uh, I don't think it's a very pretty picture that's been painted. And the Canadians uh, are, uh, they're reacting. You know, they're, 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 the conversations I have with my Canadian friends uh, are really uh, quite intense. You know, they're, 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 there's a sense of, you know, you're on the wrong path and you're dragging us into it to some degree, uh, although Canada did not support the war, et cetera. So I would say, you know, on a short answer side, there's definite differences uh, in the cultures that are worth exploring, and I enjoy going back and forth Mm -hmm. simply because the conversation is rich.
0: And in terms of global public opinion, I believe Canada is now one of the two most admired countries in the world, and the United States is one of a handful of the least admired. Mm -hmm. So you're sitting at an interface between two cultures that, regardless of our point of view and sort of the global vision, uh, hold rather different uh, positions in terms of uh, yep. world public opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been very mm-hmm. involved in life coaching, and you work uh, with uh, an organization called Life Coaching from Falling Awake with a man named Dave Ellis. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about life coaching and your work with Dave Ellis. Uh, you mentioned to me in a, a while we were chatting before we began this conversation that Dave has been deeply interested in uh, uh coaching nonprofit leaders and in fact has had a quite powerful effect on the nonprofit leadership community yeah. and uh that the uh the opportunity to think about energizing the 1.5 million non-ngos non-governmental organizations around the world into a more coherent energy field is a is a powerful opportunity mm-hmm. so what is your life coaching work like and what is this work that you do with dave ellis all about
1: well thanks for asking uh, it's my current passion in terms of uh, you know as someone who has a background in medicine and psychiatry and holistic uh, medicine uh, and community activism uh life coaching is in some ways a natural uh, progression uh, for the use of my skill set and my interests um, i was particularly drawn to breakthrough enterprises which is the name of dave's organization because of dave's uh, philanthropy and his generosity he created a foundation called the brand foundation which gives away millions of dollars uh, uh, in an effort to provide free life coaching for uh you know leaders of nonprofits who are doing uh, good work in the world and you know life coaching is, is is one of those vague terms at this point because there must be dozens of life coaching trainings in schools by now and there's executive coaching and health you know various uh, disciplines uh what we're talking about is working with someone in a in an intimate relationship one-on-one over time to identify what the person is really trying to do with their life in other words what do they want most out of their life and how to get it you know so it's it's, there's (laughs) an element that you'll see why i resonate with dave's approach uh, of beginning with celebration with the gratitude of you know having a successful and a a good life Uh, and believe me anybody who's uh, directing a meaningful organization or people like ourselves we we have successful lives here we are You get into the fact that we're part of the 0.1% of the wealthiest people on the planet and have our needs met in many ways. Um, So there's celebration, visioning, helping people to vision and and, and do this with a lot of clarity and a lot of detail in terms of what they want in every aspect of their life. And then the third phase has to do with multiple action plans to actually uh, generate and here's the good news the way we approach it is through soulful listening so that a person is able to speak and write about and feel into what it what it means to come up with a solution or an action plan that would would be uh, workable for them and here's the amazing thing is that when you spend the time with a person the way it's done usually is over the telephone since these leaders are all over the planet um once a week once every other week depending on scheduling uh, over the course of three six nine twelve months uh, the kinds of support and transformation that people want in their lives unfold
0: so this is fascinating to me because I I think of all the nonprofit uh, uh, leaders I never like the word leaders a lot I have to say but Mm -hmm. People engaged in meaningful work and nonprofits mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, that I know who are uh, overwhelmed with work, stressed, and feel that they're doing good work, but they feel often a dissatisfaction with their life mm-hmm. in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. So, what would A good life coach do with a creative person who felt just totally overwhelmed Mm. by email by conference calls by uh, conferences by hundreds of activities by not enough funding what does a life coach do with somebody who is living that reality
1: and you're describing the norm In the nonprofit world by the way this is not like some exception to the rule Uh, which is exactly why it's important uh, I mean we're living in a moment where the world as a whole is trying to find itself in a way that has survivability and sustainability uh, built into the solution Um, what we do and I'll speak very personally uh, I am uh, a person who tries to love the other person and be open and accepting of where they're at and in a non-judgmental kind of way and yet the the role of the coach is to support and encourage and polish up the brilliance the ideas that the person has has for their own life because if i were to talk to you about what you want in your life you know only you can really answer that question honestly and authentically and uh what happens is that the person starts to recognize that, well, gee, while I want to make a difference, maybe it's not the best way to go about this if I'm burning out or feeling exhausted or my family is screaming for my attention or I nev- never take vacation or I'm underpaid because I feel guilty if I take you know, enough to make my life easy financially. Uh, you can see how that would weigh heavy on people and uh, it's possible Simply through uh, a a process of celebrating, visioning, and believe it or not, the visioning piece, when it comes to life coaching, it turns out the human imagination is your best friend, and it's underutilized when it comes to creating your own personal future. People tend to feel uh, either ashamed or guilty, or they say, oh, I shouldn't want so much, or I shouldn't want that, I shouldn't have desires, I should be a Buddhist, you know. Uh, uh, well, you know what Buddhists have desires. I mean, <laughs> the Dalai Lama is always hoping for, you know, good right. things for right. people in uh, his culture. Uh, anyway, um, so it becomes this. Um, and I'm going to use the word fun because uh, the other thing I really believe is that, as you know, uh, if you can, if you can play. Uh, and be creative in a playful mode, you're you're likely to tap into a deeper level of a person's brilliance than if you esen- essentially only engage the mind, you know, the analytical function. So it's a more holistic approach to personal and social change.
0: Speaking of having fun, I I often feel that I'm sort of too serious a person. <laughs> I would do better and people around me would do better if I just lightened up a little bit. So, uh, as a life coach, suppose I came to you and presented <laughs> you with this uh, problem that I have. What would you say to me?
1: I would say that's easy. Okay. Uh, meaning, uh, if you if your intention is right. to either have more fun immediately or learn how to right. be uh, more playful and lighthearted, uh, then then that's that's really the first step. You know, and uh, I hear you actually acknowledging that you would like this yeah. and. Uh, then the question becomes, well, what's your idea of a good time? You know, for some mm-hmm. people, it would be singing. Mm-hmm. Uh, for others, it's uh, playing silly <coughs> games. And you know, there are lots. In the, the good news: there are lots of uh, silly games to play in the world. My wife Peggy, uh, working with teenagers, has built up a catalog of the most amazing, you know, games that get you belly laughing uh, and uh, having a good time with. Either you know small groups or yourself. Um, for me, for instance, I'm a musician. So when I think of having uh, fun, a lot of times it involves making music. Mm-hmm. You know, for other people it's dancing. You know, for some people it's sports. Uh, but my point is that if you really want to lighten up, it's 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 uh, it's your it's your God-given right. You know, your birthright to uh, play and, and enjoy your life.
0: So I would fully celebrate what life has given me. I would then vision what I hoped for for however many more years I'm given. Mm -hmm. And then I would make different plans in different parts of my life for those different pieces that I was interested in. I would feel my way into that in a real way. That's right. Uh, And then the third piece was... uh, well, that is the third piece. Well, it's, it's
1: the, the action The multiple plan, yes. action plans. You see, but the, the key here, Stephen Covey says it very nicely. He says, begin with the end in mind. So you want to use your imagination to see, you know, let's say three months from now, you want to be having a great time every day for at least an hour. And that turns out to be laughter or some kind of joy for most people. Uh, and then there it is. You see it. And you say, there I am. I'm just know laughing and having a good time with my whatever i I have no idea what that might mean for you and then you step back from there and you actually create the action plan you know well in order for me to be having a good time three months from now what would have to be happening a month from now you know and you'd be well i would have to be allotting a certain amount of time every day or you you see what i'm saying It, it becomes very practical that's the good news this is not some kind of oh i wish that something would transform my life
0: and similarly as you know, I've worked at Commonwealth for the last 32 years. Um, and we do sort of serious conferences well. And we do these cancer help programs well. And there's a not insignificant amount of sort of intrinsic joy that bubbles around in our community of work. But I'm not very good at throwing parties, <laughs> uh, I'm not very good at sort of bringing out the. Uh, bubbling joy in the community in a way that is transformative for the community or transformative for our work. Mm. So suppose we wanted to do more of uh, the cultivation of uh, collective joy. What?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How would we do that as a community of work?
1: Well, um, first of all, it's not rocket science. And, you know, these are teachable skills. Um, Uh, the desire to learn how to do that Uh, again i I, you notice i focus a lot on intention if this is your intention you know that's the first step and you get clear about that and you make a commitment to learn um give you examples uh the the power of hope organization goes into the world and offers uh, courses like uh, what's it called express yourself you know how to use the arts with teens, You know, that, 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 that's a course that's specifically designed for them. And then they realized that people wanted to do this with adults, too. And so they've created something called the Heart of Facilitation, which is a year-long training for people who really want to use the arts. And I'm, I'm focusing on, on, on this model because when it comes to play, what you have to do is to allow the creative aspect of, of your life, you know, the, the part of you that wants to make stuff up, And that tends to be, you know, if you're going to get people there quickly, use the arts, you know, use the visual arts or dance or music or song. um, And then they have uh, another program called the Art of Facilitation, which is just a weekend or a series of weekends that teach people. uh, And again, in three days, you could could either send yourself or send one or two people from your organization, and you'd immediately have the impact you're looking for. It would Mm -hmm. just... uh, Because, first of all, everybody loves this stuff, as you might imagine. It just raises the energy level in an organization and builds community and lots of positive side effects, you might say.
0: So have you actually been involved as a life coach yourself in seeing a reasonably effective, fairly serious organization incorporate collective joy in a way that actually turned out to work well for the organization?
1: Well, uh, I don't you know I'm not an organizational consultant myself uh, have i second hand in terms of the work that power of Hope does or the work that some of the o d people that that we work with organizational does? development yes organization yeah. um yes yes this is uh as a matter of fact the the more you you dig into uh organizational development and transformation in a time of uh i mean The world is changing faster now every day than it ever has and the need for creativity and innovation and trust-based relationships as a means of actually accomplishing the goals of organizations is increasing exponentially so I guess what I'm saying is this is this is an idea whose time has come and the the organ if you look carefully at organizations that are really highly successful you'll see that uh, they have the capacity to collaborate both internally and in terms of the relationships with their customers and with the world. Uh, so this is, I think we're talking about, I hope we're talking about the future because it's a lot more fun than the present. <laughs> right. So
0: it's, it's interesting talking with you about this because I realize that how deep my unconscious resistance is to feeling okay about <laughs> uh, pursuing joy as a personal or social strategy.
1: Mm-hmm. Well I mean here we are the the protestant ethic has dominated this culture since since they came over on the boats right <laughs> and you know uh I I I look at our history and I'm not going to judge it as oh we made a wrong turn or whatever we we've gotten here the way we've gotten here but I do believe that this th- This notion that the Calvinist ethic of okay, work is work, and let's just you know make it as efficient as possible and treat people like automatons uh, has has resulted in a in a scenario that's it, it, it's a no go for the future. We have to change on a fundamental level, and what I'm suggesting that people just try on is the idea that this could actually be a joyful you know embracing of what life is really all about.
0: My friend and colleague Jennifer Stoll has been after me for years to uh, to think about joy. I've always understood, I've always understood the transformational power of pain and suffering, mm. you know, which is real. It as is very real. It's very real. Mm. But there's something about joy as a transformational strategy. Maybe I have thought that the pursuit of joy was sort of a jinx that you could bring. It's almost like a Jewish thing, you know, that that <laughs> you shouldn't celebrate that much, that you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't pursue, uh, you shouldn't pursue joy, that joy is a, a consequence of a life of service, but not something to be sought in a direct
1: way. Well, you've just touched on, now imagine if you inverted that notion, and as we say in Falling Awake... Recognize that celebration, you begin with celebration rather than end with it because celebration actually provides the energy for the change mm. as opposed to giving you the energy once the change has been accomplished. Mm. You see, it, like I say, it's kind of flipping things over. What, what I really, uh, if you get a chance to read this book uh, by Barbara Arnrich, uh, Dancing in the Streets, The History of Collective Joy, she is so careful to show how, you know, in the old days, you know, pick a, an era prior to industrialization, festivals were the norm. I mean, people had holiday. You only worked, you know, to eat and take care of business. And then the rest of the time was play. And they came up with all kinds of religious and other, you know, rites and festivals, uh, excuses to have parties, you might say. Now, one of the things that happened is that during these festivities and carnivals and and uh, celebrations uh the fool or the the playful spirits would would essentially poke fun at the powers that be so it was very useful in terms of maintaining some kind of social balance uh to have lots of opportunities to poke fun at whoever the king the priests the shamans etc and uh, you can see how over time what happened was we just came down hard on the festivities because a, as social hierarchy became a little more stratified and rigid uh, rigidified uh, you know it uh, it doesn't serve those who are in control to have uh, you know the working man or the the hoi polloi uh, poking fun and, and and looking for ways to change the system you know and so i am trying to point to the fact that it's it's you shouldn't feel bad that you know somewhere you've got this notion that joy is not uh, a, uh, an aspect of of uh, real change uh, i think uh, if you dig into this you, you'll see that indeed it is and it's quite an energizer
0: and sort of reflecting on myself as as i listen to you talk about joy i realize that it's not only external social control that suppresses joy, but that I have internalized Mm -hmm. within myself Mm -hmm. a system of social control of myself Mm -hmm. that is somehow threatened by uh who I might be if I just allowed joy to express that way.
1: Well of course Freud called this the super ego, you know, and that's exactly right. It was like a little policeman inside your head saying, you can't do that or you know, get serious, you know, you're being foolish. I mean, I think we all have that internal negative dialogue that uh, that tries to, like you say, dampen down our enthusiasm. I mean, look at little kids. They get s- they get loud, they get crazy, they laugh, they giggle, they fall on the ground, you know. I mean, what happened to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it got trained out of us. <laughs> right, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, your work with uh, something very local. Actually, one of the things that uh, that uh, Vicki Robbins said to me uh, was she was really interested in relocalization mm-hmm. as a phenomenon. And it seems to me in Western Marin County where I live in the town of Bolinas where I live that there is a kind of a relocalization going on in mm-hmm. many communities, that communities are looking seriously at what it means to live sustainably together Mm -hmm. and having a sense that we can talk about the broader principles, but at the end of the day, it's what we do at a place like Commonweal. It's what we do in Bolinas or West Marin, where a lot of this is going to be worked out. Mm -hmm. So you've been involved in some very specific uh, community development work on Whidbey Island. Uh, You're a co-founder of something called the Goosefoot Community Fund that's Mm -hmm. been involved with affordable housing, business investment, sustainable development, the arts. What is the history and shape of the relocalization that you've witnessed Mm -hmm. in your years on Whidbey Island? And how have you engaged with that?
1: Well, um, yeah, I, I, I think applying it to your own community and place, uh, is where to begin and when you live in an island community as i said it's pretty clear what local means it means on the island uh so you you've got uh this this movement across the world Uh, in the united states it's now called the business alliance for local living economies but it's the recognition uh and this comes in many forms uh, but but for some of us for instance uh, y2k The uh, turnover uh, to the new millennium represented uh, a potential threat to uh, the infrastructure of advanced technological societies. In other words, it was an awareness that, gee, if it's true that these computers will stop functioning, then the electronic or the electric grid and the food distribution, you know, the the systems are going to fall apart. Now, I engaged uh, on the island, on Whidbey Island, uh, with a lot of activists to not not to scare the bejesus out of people about doomsday, but but to ask the question, if, you know, the infrastructure uh, were to collapse, and on Whidbey Island, by the way, we have a major earthquake fault right under the island, and we're expecting at some point in maybe not our lifetime, but maybe, uh, people to have to deal with the uh, same kind of thing you're looking at here in California. It could happen, you know. So all of a sudden, there's a proactive kind of emergency preparedness uh, frame uh, emerging, which is useful. But for me, and on Whidbey Island, what we were able to do was to ask the question more from the point of view of what we called community resilience rather than community preparedness. What makes for a healthy, resilient community? And it turns out that what makes for a healthy, resilient community is uh, social capital, The, the capacity To have relationships based on trust and reciprocity so that should something uh, bad happen and you know for Whidbey it happened this winter in the form of power outages that lasted for four or five days Uh, that may not sound like a big deal but you know if you've got people who are elderly or infirmed or can't take care of themselves and the power goes out and the only heat they have is electric heat they're in trouble and they need help so I guess what I'm saying is that we're looking at how does a community take care of itself uh, under dire circumstances. And once you take away the dire circumstances, you just realize, well, you know, all the things that we would do if Y2K were to happen or there were an earthquake, uh, we would want to do anyway if we just wanted to have a stronger, happier, healthier community. Things like the growth of food locally because there are other reasons to recognize that you're not always going to be able to be sh- shipping kiwis from New Zealand to put in your grocery store. Uh, as uh, peak oil kicks in, uh, there's, there's going to be the uh, sheer expense of shipping food around the world, and people are going to turn to local local food production. Uh, alternative energy sources, other than uh, the the grid that we're plugged into, so that that's kind of obvious. Uh, how to deal with septic when you don't have... Uh, you know, the the systems that are currently, uh, you know, using lots of water, et cetera. I think these questions, uh, I mean, on Whidbey Island, we like to look at ourselves and say, we want to be a model. We just, you know, not that everybody has to admire us, but, but we want to show that it's possible for these things uh, to work. And uh, there are lots, hundreds of other communities all over the country, and I would say all over the world, who are... Uh, engaging in social experiments of one kind or another to move toward uh, local economy and sustainability.
0: Now, these different experiences, and I I must say the town of Bolinas has many of the same functions, but one of the things that has long struck me about Marin County in general Mm -hmm. and actually West Marin in particular is that um, we punch below our weight class in terms of the differential between the collective consciousness which is very high and the collective achievement of moving toward real Mm. integrated models of this and I wonder I'm wondering to what degree Whidbey Island is functioning in a closer relationship between the collective consciousness of wanting sustainability and resilience and Local agriculture and all that, um, and the achievement. It's interesting in West Marin. Um, for example, we have a very vibrant uh, uh, local agricultural mm-hmm. uh, uh, piece of work, and, and we have, organic. <laughs> yeah, very strong, and we have you know some local community development in terms of uh, housing and some. Uh, there there are different networks that are self-forming that do these things, but there isn't, and I'm curious whether you have this on Whidbey, there isn't an integrated collective planning process that takes the pieces and says, okay, it, it's the equivalent of the life coaching that you're talking about, takes the pieces and says, okay, what do we want to be as a community, what are the pieces, and how do we more consciously mm-hmm. intend this together. So does Whidbey have that or is it the same as in West Moran where it's, you know, different individual pieces that people are doing but very little coordination among them?
1: Yeah, um, Great question. Uh, it just so happens, you know, I live in the town of Langley, thousand people, uh, Langley, Washington, uh, and Whidbey and uh, Washington State has something called the Growth Management Act, which s- says to each of the counties, you know, you have to give us a plan for how you're going to maintain open space and deal with the, you know, ultimate inevitable development, you know, increase in population, et cetera. Well, that gets bumped all the way down to the community level, and Langley uh, is uh, a fairly conscious community in this regard. One, one of our uh, city councilmen uh, is Robert Gilman, who uh, you may remember uh, In Context Magazine, yes. which is now Yes Magazine. Right. Well, Robert is, you know, Quite a visionary uh, sustainability thinker and uh so the process of doing the comprehensive planning for langley has now become a citizen uh driven process we actually i'm i'm for instance the chairman of the parks and open space committee there's a group of eight of us who meet on a regular basis to ask that question well, what kind of open space do we want to see here 20 years from now? What, what kind of parks would we like to create that don't ex- You know, this kind of thing. And we have a group of 10 committees who are doing this as opposed to the city planner takes this task on and some bureaucratic decisions are made and that's, that's the future uh, comprehensive plan for Langley. Um, I think the reason we can do it is so that it's a smaller scale. I think that, uh, quite frankly, Marin's wealth is really a problem. I agree with that. You know, one of the things wealth has this paradoxical effect of giving people the sense of insulation from like I don't really have to talk to my neighbor because I can afford to buy the services I need you see what I'm saying? Right. And I I don't mean this as a judgment about Marin. I love Marin. The women who came up with the idea of preserving most of the green space here, they should be like declared saints. I mean, it was just a brilliant thing that happened in this place, and I, I, obviously, my daughter lives here, and I work here with the the life coaching work, so I love spending time here, but in general, I don't mean to single out Marin County, but uh, wealth (laughs) becomes a barrier Mm -hmm. to the kind of community conversations that create collective visions uh, and allow people to energize them, Uh, because, you know, talk is cheap. This This is actually like work people have to dedicate time energy and money to creating the future that they want
0: and your your community plan there we have a community plan in bolinas that was deeply formative and we're thinking of looking at at it again Mm. but somehow the bolinas community plan seems to be a quite static thing that is put in place i don't know every couple of decades and then we live with it until we need to redo it Mm. but as the community planning process on Whitby and particularly in the town that you live in Langley is it a a dynamic process that is continuous
1: yes well you have to um, reconsider it every couple of years and revise it so that that and this this citizen participation that I'm talking about is relatively new we have an online forum now called the Langley Community Forum which is a very effective way for people to talk about what they want. And, and, and
0: we and, haven't created an yeah. online forum in Bellinas, or to my knowledge, in the other communities in West Marin. I can't speak for the other towns mm-hmm. in West Marin, but I know we haven't in Bolinas. Mm-hmm. So you have created in Langley mm-hmm. an online forum.
1: Yeah, and uh, the next town up, Freeland, uh, Washington, has a similar an thing. Forum. Uh, um, yeah, the, I mean, when I think of Bolinas, the, the fact that the sign is taken off the road, for instance, that's kind of like pull up the drawbridge and, you know, don't let people come. Or, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a plan of sorts, but I, and I'm sure there's a lot more to what you guys are doing. But um, I'm thinking that we have to – Bolinas is enough of an island, you know, socially, to, uh, to really be, you know, a great example and model. I would encourage you to uh, – to engage. Well, what we element. do
0: have is the Bolinas Hearsay News, which Michael Rafferty started 30 years ago, oh, which yeah? comes out three times a week, and its motto is, you know, every citizen a reporter, so we all yeah. you know, kick in. But at this point, I've, I think that it would be really useful to, to have an online process that well was part of that.
1: Yeah, it, and it's pretty uh, straightforward to create that kind yeah. of thing now. The software is free and available and, you know. yeah. Leadership is needed, obviously. Somebody has to pick up the ball.
0: My last line of questioning for you is um, about your interest in the Internet and the World Wide Web as a, a tool uh, for the kind of collective change that we're seeking. And um, tell me just about um, how you have come to see uh, the the Internet as a uh, as an organizing tool and what what are the most creative uses of it from mm. your perspective in terms of social change
1: well that's a big question uh, and it's been in my mind uh, since the 60s uh, i was uh, influenced and, and uh, mentored by marshall McLuhan, uh, the fellow who wrote the medium is the message uh, and coined the term uh, global electronic village uh,
0: and by bucky fuller uh,
1: and by correct? buckminster yeah. fuller uh, who i worked with on the world game for right. 6 7 years uh, again these these are uh, two geniuses who were looking at the relationship between culture and technology and recognizing that it was a virtual loop that they essentially influenced and shaped each other and we happen to be living in a time of technological change that is so rapid that you know, the best and brightest uh, are all holding on with their nails, so, myself included. And I am totally an information and knowledge junkie, so I've done my best. And I can tell you, I'm drowning in the sea of <laughs> new information and understanding. But this is a great uh, time to recognize that the nature of relationships, one of the few things we've not been able to commod- commodify, are human relationships. And I think that's the good, that's our saving grace. Uh, The way we structure business, economies, and uh, society is transforming uh, as a result of the Internet in particular. I mean, it's not just the Internet, you know, it's satellite communications and our capacity to connect uh, globally at the speed of light the opportunity here and again i ask all of us to reflect on what's really happening in our lives and notice that we use email to connect with people and notice that things like google are a result of relationships based on trust and reciprocity google generates the information it generates based on people's use of websites you you see what i'm saying that we are now experiencing what's called mass collaboration on a a global scale so that this is going to transform all of our lives in ways that we can hardly imagine now if you look at where new wealth is being generated you notice that most of it is electronic it has to do I mean look at the billionaires and you'll notice that they're under the age of 30 and they're all computer wizards they're called the digerati you know this this new 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 class of video gamers who are really clever uh, you know creative uh, people so we've got the net generation coming along who have grown up with the Internet and understand the power of trust-based relationships as opposed to, you know, my generation and, and the world for the past 300 years have have, have built our wealth and, and our power on the idea of social hierarchy and, and the limitation of uh, human exchange. In other words, the way you, you get to be a powerful, wealthy person is you create a boundary and you charge people uh, to use whatever it is you have within your boundary it's called intellectual property or personal property Uh, the future the 21st century is going to be so different by the time we get to the middle of this century because digital information creates this mass collaboration it's what's called the wisdom of the crowd by one author which i think is a brilliant way of talking about collective intelligence and collective wisdom uh, as a source of wealth, real wealth, you know the, the ability to make a difference in the real world. Uh, so for me, I'm very excited because i just uh, McLuhan was the person who showed me that you know somebody or some group of people actually actually has, has to ask better questions about what's what's the impact or the potential good of a technology on the world. And I think uh, the communications revolution potentially could really liberate us.
0: you know speaking of that. Uh, new generation that has grown up uh, with uh, the internet and the World Wide Web and uh, and its uh, understanding of trust-based uh, relationships. I was talking with my wife, Shaw Patton, the other night about um, just some of the younger people we know in the Commonweal community, particularly those involved with the Commonweal Garden, where there's just a Whole bunch of amazing young people who are, oh, yeah. are working there, and and I, I I said to her that I had the feeling that we were finally meeting the generation that we'd been waiting for, and that uh, that uh, when you and I were chatting before we started this conversation, you talked about um, the the consciousness that was created in the 60s, and I don't remember exactly what you said, but somehow that we had reached the point where what we were trying to do in the 60s had matured to a place where real social transformation might be possible. I don't know if I'm paraphrasing you right. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me is that that There is, I don't don't want to put it on a single generation because it's more than just generational, Mm -hmm. but there's somehow an alliance of some kind going on between a consciousness that did historically flower in the 60s and a whole new generation that, what strikes me, among other things, is they don't want to do this stuff in theory. They want to build it in reality on the ground, Mm -hmm. and that's what they trust. They trust, you know, uh, they're not so much into the ideological dimensions in this, but how do you actually do it? And I guess I just wonder, not to predispose you toward any answer, but what is your own felt sense of what... Our opportunity and responsibility is as the folks who came of age in the 60s, and what resonance are you finding for what we discovered that was a value? Because a lot of what we discovered was destructive or not helpful. Mm-hmm. But what is it that we found that was a value that, in your experience, may be finding resonance in younger people?
1: Mm. You know, uh, I'm a very hopeful, optimistic person at this point in my life. Uh, and, you know, if you're a realist and you look around the world, you say, my God, we're going to hell in a handbasket and global warming, blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, it's a scary moment on, on on one level. But think about it. it. In the 60s, a lot of us basically recognized that war is not the answer. It never will be. And it has to be transformed; we have to find other ways to resolve conflict uh, i really- i mean kids in the eighties and nineties i mean you know the the next generations uh they're they're well aware of the fact that you know i mean terrorism is essentially the sophisticated use of asymmetrical warfare I mean look at what's going on in the world. You know, anybody who's willing to die can blow up people i mean so we've got to figure out a way to meet the needs of. Of people all over the world uh, and to do it nonviolently, people say well the nature of humans is to be aggressive and violent I don't think so I think uh, if you look at the whole social intelligence body of research uh, it's pretty clear that we're also wired for bonding and attachment and trust and you know our higher nature certainly has the capacity to resolve conflicts so I feel uh, and I should have mentioned this that you know when we do our Hollyhock summer gathering uh, these uh, Power of Hope camps also take place on Cortez Island, two of them every summer. And we bring the kids over to have an intergenerational dialogue uh, during one of the afternoons because it's there that you realize that, you know, the children want to look to us not for answers but for the right questions. What should we be paying attention? How, can you help us? You know, we, we I mean, a lot of young people don't think they have a future. They actually look at the world and say, you know, it doesn't matter. I can't change the you know they feel powerless to, to make changes so I, I really feel we have an obligation uh, because we've had the uh, you know we've been to the mountaintop we know what's possible um, to mentor and to teach and to support and, and love these kids and in- encourage them to you know to be the leaders of the of the future that we need in order to make it to the positive future and I'm, that's why I'm hopeful because I see how they respond to that when you shine your light on these uh, young people and give them the support and love that uh, we all need, uh, they go for it. They don't don't wither. They they, they actually uh, become stronger and more confident and more empowered. So it's it's a good thing.
0: Rick and Grassi, thank you for being with us in the New School.
1: My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Uh,
2: Do you know about the Artist Republic of Fremont in Seattle and the Summer Solstice Parade that they do there? Have you ever attended?
1: Uh, I'm aware of it. I mean, certainly Fremont is full of creative spirits. It's a great uh, uh, neighborhood in, in Seattle. But uh, because I, I literally spend my summers up on Cortez Island, I'm never there at summer solstice. Right, right. So, but uh, have you been there? Yeah. Oh. What,
2: what they do there um, involves the whole, um, the whole community. Anyone in the city can come or in the islands can come. Uh, and for several weeks beforehand, about three weeks beforehand, they find um, a space from year to year, it kind of changes in a building that's empty or something. Mm-hmm. And they completely take it over. They do a similar thing. They, they're teaching classes about how to do the arts. They invite people of any age. So kids are especially encouraged at certain hours of the day when there are people there teaching things that would be of special interest to them. And then organically, this... Um, this uh, you know it's a, it's a parade, but there are moments in it that are, have story in them. But mm. organically, this uh, this creation happens together, and it's 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 a time of total joy and celebration.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. And uh, Power of Hope uh, participated in one thing that Fre- uh, Fremont is you know kind of one of the hippest communities in in Seattle, and uh, they did a S- Save the Salmon Day, and. Uh, the Power of Hope teens spent two days making, you know, uh, kind of a, a salmon float and, and, and costumes and using the arts, and then they participated in, in a larger uh, Fremont event. That's a, re- you know, that's what I mean by collective joy as a f- force in social change.
2: What I found so amazing about um, these, is the Summer Solstice Parade is the big event and the whole city is invited. People come from far away. But they have events throughout the year we, um, on pagan holidays you know mm. um, to really to really celebrate the changing of the year and there's a lot of there's a lot of storytelling that goes on. I mean mm. um, in the summer solstice parade they're they're honoring the, re- the return of the sun and there's always um, there's always a great story that goes with that but for the for the children they're really part of not just a, a big theatrical, but they're seeing their community come together in a way they don't see the rest of the year. That's right. This is an amazing time for them. Uh-huh. They see people that don't know each other that are helping each other build. The, I mean, it's all happening in this big space, so everyone's sharing things, helping each other. And for the people that live in that community, I think that's those events are kind of the foundation of the community. When the event's over, people are still connecting because of this powerful experience that's that had right
1: together so, uh, thank you for bringing that example up uh you know i, I was down in guatemala my uh, son and daughter-in-law are adopting a guatemalan baby and we were in antigua for three and a half weeks to meet the baby and hang out uh, and uh, it was Semana santa which is holy week prior to easter and I was blown away. Antigua is the center of the rituals and the, and the processions for Samana Santa. Uh, and people come from all over Central America. I mean, you can't get a hotel room in Antigua at, during Holy Week because of the uh, processions. and the, the part that I wanted to mention uh, that's somewhat similar to uh, Tibetan sand paintings, uh, Kale Chakra Sutra, where they use uh, the Tibetans make a, a mandala and then they destroy it kind of a symbolic uh, nod to impermanence well in Samana Santa there are thousands of people lining the streets neighborhoods all create these things called alfombras, which are rugs made out of sawdust colored sawdust using stencils and they're elaborate they're 30 40 feet long they tell stories you know usually the crucifixion or something related to Christianity but not all some some of them are Mayan it relates to their their Mayan history and then the processions, which go on for fifteen hours with these heavy floats that are carried by the communities dressed in various purple garb uh, they march over these alfombras, which took ten fifteen hours to create, and they're gone and I just i i was I felt really privileged to be there at a time when. Thousands of people, you know, from, uh, from Guatemala and other places, were doing what you're talking about. You know, sharing this experience that would impact their lives uh, long after uh, you know their their time together. So,
2: I, I what I wanted to ask about was how how you've seen the power of story um, bring a community together and mm. what that does to a community.
1: Yeah, I. Uh, I think I'm glad you're asking that question because, uh, not having specifically focused on that, I I actually think this is all about the power of story. That, uh, I mean, if you think of cosmology and how humans make meaning out of their lives, we tell stories. You know, this is who I am, this is where I come from, this is where we're going. Um, I happen to believe we're living in a moment where the story, uh, that we've been living by stories that are no longer uh, useful so that the story is actually changing we have to invent a better story you know and i really uh i think we're we're going to have to re-engage storytelling on all levels uh in order to and i when i say all levels i mean we have movies and other media images that tell us stories all the time and and uh i don't know about you but i look at what most of the stories that come out of holly hollywood and other sources of uh media and and i say this is a sad story this is not the story i want to live by or create for my children uh, let's let's uh let's do this better so it's it's the key it's it's uh you know it's what thomas berry and brian swim people like that called the new story of the universe mm-hmm. you know we now know a lot more about where we come from in terms of our cosmology well let's let's create a world that actually reflects That uh, beautiful story of evolution—a
2: shared story and an enduring story. Mm -hmm.
1: Thank you.
3: You know, Rick Yanni Chapman. I am a native of Boston, and way back in the old days, I worked at Erwan when the New Age Journal was created. Oh, wow! uh, With Paul Hawken, a lot of exactly attended a lot of workshops at Interface. So there was, uh, so you and Peggy were an important part of my life, although I never met you. Oh, wonderful. Uh, But what's so lovely here decades later is to realize that the work that you began back then in trying to create a social milieu where people could learn what was important to them and move that into Mm -hmm. making a difference in the world to be sitting here today and seeing how now that has moved into um, the culture mm-hmm. in a in a way that's I- it's infused everywhere so maybe the, the town of Bolinas doing its work the the different communities that you're speaking of in the islands to the north that 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 it brings hope in that there are these collective communities working on that and I think Michael, your idea of some kind of an internet connection, connecting those communities so that everyone isn't reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. but there's so much more collaboration. So that gives me a lot of thrill. I just wanted to say that.
1: Oh, wonderful. I'm really nice to know that you yeah. <laughs> shared some moments with us there because those were fun days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really, uh, the, the, the power, you know, I'll say this very simply. I think the networking potential that we have, the, the way of organizing socially is a return of the feminine. I think that you know the need for trust and love- based relationships, the nurturing kind of dynamics that that really do lead to peaceful coexistence uh, can only be uh, can only be led really by uh, either women or, the feminine within each man, because, and again, not to get into a kind of gender diatribe, but the fact is that patriarchy, I mean, I go, I travel around the world, and I, I still see most women treated as chattel. It's it's kind of shocking when you go outside, uh, you know, the first world to see the lives of most women. And, and you know, I, I think uh, thoughtful people recognize that the education of women all over the world and the empowerment of women is... Is the way we're going to get there. That's where the leadership has to come from, and uh, I'm really I appreciate your giving me the opportunity to kind of bring that because it's it's I think it's true.